Al Jazeera podcast. Hi, I'm Alexandra Locke, and I'm the executive producer of The Take. I want to tell you about something new that we're doing, starting this week on The Take, joining you now every Saturday and Sunday. We're calling it Another Take, and we'll be revisiting stories we've done that are in the news again. This week, all we've covered is the war unfolding in Gaza. Today's Another Take is also from Gaza, but it's a side that we rarely see, especially now, a strawberry harvest. We talked to two longtime Al Jazeera journalists and colleagues, Stephanie Decker and Safwat Al-Kahlout. Safwat is reporting in Gaza as we speak. This originally aired on February 17th, 2020, and it was updated in 2022. Heads up, none of the dates or other references have been changed. Enjoy the show. They're delicious. They're super sweet. Uh, they're super fresh. Um, the smaller ones are sweeter than the bigger ones. I think as humans, we always think that bigger and better, but actually <laughs> the smaller one is sweet, right? There you go. It was almost like he was giving me a life lesson. <laughs> when the so-called deal of the century normalized relations between Israel and Bahrain and the UAE and Gaza... All that felt a world away. But back then, there were other negotiations that went under the radar between Israel and Hamas, the group that's run Gaza since 2007. It wasn't an agreement. It wasn't a truce. It was an understanding. But it gave people a moment of relief. And the signs were in the strawberries. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. We're talking about two sides of Gaza, the stories that usually make the news and the ones that don't. We're talking to senior correspondent Stephanie Decker and producer Safwat Al-Kahlout, who lives in Gaza. These two had been working together for more than a decade, and Safwat has helped Stephanie out of some tight spots over the years. So, Steph, in your Instagram story, you introduced us to Safwat, and you have a nickname for him. Oh! <laughs> the minister, it was the Minister of Defense. He nicknamed himself that, by the way. That's not me. Well, I, I made it just to, to give you an idea about how, how difficult it is to, to push these kids and to kick them out because we have always lots of kids uh, trying to come and say, hello, how are you? You know, because they are not used to see foreigners. Even during while she's doing her live shots. Well, she's laughing now, but this is true. Crowd, I guess crowd control, right? Minister of Defense. So Safwat and Stephanie had been debating whether they should cover something a little less chaotic. It took some work, but eventually Safwat was convinced that the local strawberry harvest could make international news. What story are we doing, Safwat? For the first time, we do about something positive, see? something fresh. We can see the countryside of Gaza. It's beautiful. It's another life. You see them when you drive, and they're so bright and red, and you see them at the back uh, of these donkey carts when they sell them on the streets uh, of Gaza City and throughout the Strip. So I'd wanted to do a harvest story anyway. So um, I said, Let, let's do it. 
So I have my laptop right now, and I'm literally Googling Beit Lahya as we speak. And the kind of headlines that come up on Google News don't make you immediately think of fruit. Describe it for us. So Beit Lahya is in the very northern part of the Gaza Strip, so close to the wall that Israel has fenced Gaza off with. So particularly when you have conflicts with Israel, when you've had the wars uh, 2014, these will be heavily targeted uh, because, you know, you have the fight going on more concentrated in those areas. So Beit Lahya, near the border with Israel, is often a target during conflict. But even during periods of calm, it's not that easy to navigate, especially when you're looking for a farm. So Beit Lahya, you don't have addresses or you don't have road signs. It's very rural. Um, so we're driving and you were looking for this one particular farm. And because Gaza is is so contained, um, everyone kind of knows each other. So you'd have Maher, our cameraman, yelling out of the window to some guy sitting in a chair on the corner and saying, do you know where, you know, so-and-so's farm is? And then this is how we sort of navigated our way. We found it in the end. In Steph's TV news report, you can see this isn't just a farm. It's also a tourist destination for Gazans. There's a woman in the greenhouse taking selfies, a cafe, and music playing while the workers pick fruit. It's warmer in here than outside on this crisp February morning. The sweet smell of ripe strawberries fills the greenhouse, and it's also pretty. While we're filming, a group of visitors arrive. So you already have this smell of strawberries, and then you have these rows and rows of strawberries cascading from the top, and then they all hang perfectly underneath, and they're all different colors. So so some of them are plump and red, ready to be picked. Others are completely green, quite bright green. Others are sort of half-half, green and red, as they're sort of slowly ripening. Um, So it's this sort of overwhelming beauty of nature that you don't see in Gaza, right? It's so for us walking into this strawberry greenhouse, we all just wanted to grab at the strawberries and you could see, you know, Safwat when we walked in started picking the strawberries off the vines right away. I was like, <laughs> Safwat, stop it. It sounds kind of irresistible. Steph told us everyone left with lots of strawberries that day, including Safwat. You forget about your story Immediately you start uh, touching the strawberry, you start even collecting automatically and eating, you know. You feel like there is a special and amazing smell that you've never seen. So, frankly, myself, I ate too much that day, (laughs) too much strawberry. So the farm belongs to a man called Abu Sami. What is he like? His proper name is Ahmed Shafai, and he's actually the chairman of one of the farmers' associations here, and his family has been farming this land for generations. And now he is 82 years old, right away when we met him. This is Beit Lahia. <laughs> he said to me, Beit Lahia's strawberries are the most delicious in the world, and it was a fact. I mean, there was no negotiating with him. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's just overwhelmingly beautiful. And 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 at the same time, because Beit Lahia is right on the northern border, you have this constant, very loud sound of a drone, like the Israeli reconnaissance drone, right? It's this it's this constant buzz and Palestinians call it zanana. It's like the mosquito. It's, and it can get in your head because it's very loud. 
So, I mean, the way I, I, I ended my package was like, you know, if you, if you can drown out that sound of the drone, you can almost imagine a different reality here because it shows you the potential. Before 1967, we exported our sea trust in Europe. Okay. Okay. And now everything changed. Uh, you know, the way he described his strawberry's journey and the challenges that the strawberry had, you could almost see him making the strawberry wait at the border and lose 20% of its freshness because of all the Israeli restrictions. And obviously, uh, sometimes the borders close because of escalations of tension. So even though this is a successful business, but it's still facing all these challenges under this occupation. These challenges go up and down from time to time, and the strawberries, along with the people, fall victim to Gaza's blockade. It can leave the fruit rotting or left by the wayside, as Safwa told us. It has been all dramatic since the farmers used to go to collect the harvest and then they have to feed animals with this lovely, beautiful strawberry because of the Israeli blockade. We've talked a lot about the Gaza that people don't see on the news, but I also wanted to hear from both of you about the Gaza that it's kind of difficult to remember. Steph, maybe we can start with you. If you go back in time... Israeli spearheads race to the Gaza Strip, advance across the entire Sinai, taking Sharm el-Sheikh at the mouth of the Gulf of Aqaba, thus breaking the blockade. Israel occupied Gaza after the 1967 war and remained in place, but you had these open borders, you had a freedom of movement. The, the sort of the, 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 the tightening of the screws on the Palestinians uh, happened over time. I think Safwat can, can tell you better about what the time was like then. I mean, people will tell you that from northern Israel that they wanted to come and have a fish dinner and they would get in their cars and drive to Gaza and, and eat yeah. a delicious seafood on the beach. Well, I think that's almost unimaginable now, Safwat. I mean, how do you... Yes. Uh, whenever I, I go to West Bank or Israel and meet Arabs there, uh, and they, uh, I tell them I am from Gaza, immediately they remember and they recall the old lovely days. Uh, many people, they feel sad that they cannot come back again and enjoy uh, the company of Gaza. Rarely could find for Gazans a place to enjoy the beach because of uh, tourism movement from outside uh, Gaza. The Gaza that Safwat remembers was open for food, for entertainment, and for business. The businessmen of Gaza or in Gaza used to make good business when there was free access from and to Gaza. They used to, pro to produce for big companies uh, in the region and for even Israeli uh, businessmen who used to buy all the Palestinian products. Things get worse after 2000, uh, but then worse and worse and worse gradually and dramatically. To get from the Gaza of that time to the Gaza of today, we have to look at a couple of seismic shifts that took place. When it comes to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, it's always a question of where you start the timeline and who's responding to whom. So, for the sake of brevity, let's start in 2000 with the Second Intifada. The Second Intifada grew out of frustration over the collapse of the peace process in 2000. Palestinian tactics now focused on suicide bombings, rocket attacks and sniper fire, which Israel met with even deadlier force. Next, 
was when, after 38 years, Israel decided to leave the Gaza Strip. In August 2005, 8,000 Israelis from the Gaza Strip and north of the West Bank were evacuated, with a large number refusing to leave their homes. They were taken non-violently out of the Strip by IDF soldiers. Without consulting Palestinians, the Israeli army pulled out. The mission is completed. An era has ended. From this moment on, the responsibility for all that takes place in Gaza Strip lays on the Palestinians. Less than six months later, there was another turning point. The Palestinian government held elections. For a long time, the Palestinian Authority had been ruled by a party called Fatah, the party of current President Mahmoud Abbas. But it lost to Hamas, a movement which did not recognize Israel or its agreements with the Palestinian government. Hamas won big. And it's worth noting, there hasn't been an election since. Israel has said it will not deal with the Palestinian government that includes Hamas. Acting Israeli Prime Minister Ahud Omer ruled out any talks with, quote, an armed terror organization that calls for Israel's destruction. And then in 2007, there was one more big change. After a Hamas takeover of Gaza, this. Infighting between Hamas and Fatah led to Hamas taking control of Gaza and to Israel imposing the blockade. So basically, um, that's when it all changed and you had a full blockade imposed uh, by Israel and Egypt, which changed everything. And of course, you're talking now 2007. So over the years, you've had countless escalations. So this is always the psychological unease as well that people here um, have to live with. Safwar and I spent three weeks here together covering the 2014 war. And then the day that I left, we got on a bus, a bunch of journalists, and we walked through, out through this border and we were, we, we breathed. But we felt so guilty. You leave one world behind and you walk into another just by crossing, you know, 50 meters. You, you can't be working in one place under the rockets, under all these uh, dangerous conditions, and your family at the other side calling you, and you, you never stop calling them to check where is the, was the last bombing, because I hear that it was next to our home, etc., etc. So I still recall from the war 2014, 51 days, uh, fear under fear and concern that this mosque could be next, the next target. And your seven children and your wife and even some of my relatives who fled from uh, border areas and lived in my home, uh, waiting till the end of the war. So you could lose half of your family and relatives, etc., etc. That was um, very much uh, terrible and horrible for me as a father who's not even at home to die with the family, as we say. That guilt that Stephanie mentioned earlier when leaving Gaza wasn't a one-time thing. After this interview with them both, Safwat stayed in Gaza, where he lives, and Stephanie finished her reporting stint there and left. We caught up with her again in Jerusalem. 
So, Steph, you've been in and out of Gaza for years now, so you must always notice the changes every time you go in. You've been covering the cycle of conflict for so long, and it must sometimes seem kind of like a broken record. Are there any signs that give you a little bit of hope? Because I know what you're working on now is a side of Gaza that people don't ordinarily see, and in them are some pretty hopeful signs, at least to me. I don't want to be pessimistic. I think we need to have hope, but I think we also have to be realistic. And with this government, with this Israeli government in place, I think it's very difficult to see how uh, a full lifting of blockade and all of these basic needs and rights that people in Gaza want are going to be provided to them in the near future. These humanitarian things that I think you and I and everyone should agree on, can agree on, that are basic human rights, clean water, sanitation, access to 24-hour electricity, uh, access to fresh uh, fruit and meat, and being able to fish in your own waters. These are basic demands that uh, the Palestinians living in Gaza do not have control of. And when they do get a little bit more than what they have now, that's a political decision uh, based on negotiations. for all of us um, doing this strawberry story was a breath of fresh air you know usually we're doing politics we're doing protests we're doing war we're doing conflict we're doing poverty it's never it's never something as beautiful as this and even though obviously the setting remains Gaza and it remains all these difficulties and challenges there's beauty in it and Gaza is full of this that I think is very important to remind people of that it's not just this sort of gray and drab place with people who have no names and no identities. You know, this is a place full of people with dreams who just want to be in charge of their own life. And more importantly, most people want a future for their children. I hope to get my freedom because freedom is really something uh, that the Palestinians are paying high price for. Um, I hope that my children and all the children, including mine, of course, that, that not to think of wars or bombardments. I hope that they can enjoy the rest of their lives, hopefully a long life, inshallah, um, in, in freedom, uh, peace and real peace. And that's The Take. This episode was updated by Alexandra Locke. The original production team was Alexandra Locke, Dina Kispe, Amy Walters, Ney Alvarez, Priyanka Telve, Natalia Aldana, Stacey Samuel, Graylin Brashear, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Alexandra Locke is The Take's executive producer, and Ney Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back tomorrow.